This is an ABC podcast. In the 1990s, people introduced this expression IRL for in real life to mark the distinction between real life and digital life. My sense is that by now in the 2020s, that's an extremely old fashioned distinction. These days, we know that our digital lives really are part of our real lives. Now that may be true, but working out the boundaries and how well we move between the two, well, that's still a work in progress. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. When we talk about the digital self, what does that really mean? And how is our sense of identity changing as the line between online and offline increasingly blurs? In this edition of Future Tense, a series of perspectives on the topic. Three, in fact. The first from David Chalmers, a professor of philosophy and co-director of the Centre for Mind, Brain and Consciousness at New York University. You know, we are conscious human beings. And I think the fact that we are conscious gives us this ability to find meaning everywhere. Different people find meaning in different things. Some people find it in their friends. Some people find it in their family. Some people find it in intellectual activities. And as far as I can tell, you know, we have the ability to invest virtual worlds with meaning just as much as we can invest physical worlds with meaning. The meaning really comes from us. Does our sense of ourself, does that change when we move between a virtual and a physical environment? I would say that our sense of self changes when we move between all kinds of environments. I mean, most of us have one persona at home and a somewhat different persona at work and maybe a different persona out with our friends. Our self is constantly adjusting to our environment. So I guess the same is true for virtual environments. Someone who goes into a you know, a virtual social world like a Second Life or VR chat may well start experiencing themselves somewhat differently and relating to their environment in a different way. But I think this is already continuous with what goes on in the physical world. Virtual environments offer, you know, amazing new forms of embodiment. Some people project in virtual worlds as members of like animal species. Some people project as robots. Some people project as Martians. Some people experiment with all kinds of different, you know, gender and cultural expression. In a way, it makes these things much easier to change and alter than in the, uh, the physical world. So one thing we found is that virtual reality spaces like VR chat have been an amazing space for people to express new aspects of their identity. I mean, sometimes it's experimental, as it is in the, uh, in the physical world, but sometimes expression of one's identity is actually turns out to reflect something very deep. So there are some people who experiment with different expressions of gender identity in the virtual world before they do so in the physical world. And then they find there's something right about that. And that serves as a precursor for them to do the same in the physical world. You've written that you don't see virtual realities as second class, but you do see them as second level. Could I get you to explain the distinction there? Yeah, there's a long tradition of thinking that virtual worlds are somehow inferior, they're fake, they're fictional. I want to resist that. I want to say they're genuinely real. You can have a meaningful life in a virtual world. That said, you know, they're not the same as physical worlds in all respects. For example, a virtual world is typically created within a physical world. So you might think, okay, physical world is level one. The virtual world created within it is level two. I don't think that makes it any worse. 
but it does put it at a different level. I mean, if it turns out that our world was created, say, by a god who lived in a, uh, a godly world, as some people think, then the physical world is itself level two and, you know, God's world will be level one. So we could be in a hierarchy of levels of worlds, but I think they're all equally real and equally meaningful. Today, we're going to talk about the metaverse. I want to share what we imagine is possible. The experiences you'll have, the creative economy we'll all build, and the technology that needs to be invented, as well as how we're going to all do this together. The basic story of technology in our lifetimes is how it's given us the power to express ourselves and experience the world with ever greater richness. Back when I started Facebook, that mostly meant text that we... There are those who see a time in the future where many people will spend, or maybe the majority of people will spend the majority of their time in a virtual world. And in one sense, I guess that's the promise of this idea of the metaverse that I know Mark Zuckerberg, but others have talked about. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, the metaverse got started in a science fiction novel by Neil Stevenson, Snow Crash, in 1992, when it represented a massive virtual world that many people use to work in, to play in, to build communities in. These days, it's come to represent the virtual future of the internet, the virtual spaces that will become extensions of our physical lives. And of course, the corporations like Meta are trying to you know, brand it now as their own. But I think this, you know, this social, virtual, online spaces are going to play a very, very big role in the future of computing. And I certainly hope they can be developed in an open way, you know, accessed for everyone, not just owned by the corporations, because we're already living so much of our life in digital spaces. I think virtual spaces and virtual reality environments are very much the inevitable next step in this process. When we're in the real world, we offer a version of ourselves which fits in to particular context. All of these ways of being are dependent on the feedback that we get from others. So we try to fit in. We try to be part of a social group, to be cohesive, or most people try that. And in part, that's shaped up by the others around us. In the digital world, there's much less direct shaping by others of our own behaviour. Phil Reid, a professor of psychology at Swansea University in the UK. In the digital world, we can be however we want to be, and people may take exception to that, but the feedback we get is somewhat more remote. So that social feedback in the digital world doesn't tend to have the immediacy, that very strong impact on people's behaviour. And that's one of the big differences that you find between real-world behaviour and digital-world behaviour. Does that mean that shaping an online identity, the construction involved in that is easier than shaping your identity, your persona, in, in the physical world? It is easier to the extent that other people aren't dismissing you. So if you want to change the way you are, then in the real world what happens is that all of the people who know you and know you well will probably quite rightly start giving you funny looks if you start behaving very, very differently to the way that you have up to that point. They'll say, oh, you're just putting it on. Why are you behaving like this? This isn't you. In the digital world, 
it's harder for people to do that. And when they do do it, it has much less immediate impact on the person creating this persona. So in some ways it is easier for somebody just to reinvent themselves digitally than it is in the real world. Of course, it's, it's limited by, I suppose, the extent of their imagination, their previous experiences, what they're carrying with them, but other people have less of a role. And that can be both good and bad, says Professor Reid. There's a good reason why we're sensitive to social feedback. In some ways, I don't want to sound like J-Lo, but it keeps us real. It keeps us almost healthy to have reality checks from other people. If it's possible to spiral off into a, a persona which is completely divorced from reality and actually completely divorced from yourself, then that person can actually experience some psychological problems, a disconnect between the real self that they have and this digital self. Now, one focus of Phil Reed's research has been on gender stereotypes and how the traditional notions of masculine and feminine behaviour and demeanour, well, how they play out in the online environment. We would think in the real world that self-presentation certainly used to follow certain fairly gender stereotypical roles. So males tended to be a little bit more aggressive in their presentation of themselves. Females tended to be a little bit more appeasing in their presentation. In the digital world, we don't really see that. If anything, the research is suggesting that females tend to be somewhat more aggressive, certainly than they are in the real world, and increasingly as aggressive, if not more aggressive online than males. So I think what we're seeing is that all of those theories we had about males and females and the way they are and the way they may have evolved, probably not true. What we're seeing is an adaptation to the current environment so that when a lot of the societal constraints are removed, males and females are acting in non-gender stereotypical ways. We're seeing in the digital world the power of the environment to shape up behaviours. It's much more contextually driven, much more driven by what you can do, what you're allowed to get away with, and that can be good and bad, than any inherent limitations to the person. And is there anything to suggest that our digital persona has an influence on our physical persona, or at least one of our personas that we adopt in the physical world? The evidence is very sparse about the impacts of digital persona in the real world. I think when people are not true to the way they really are, and they try too hard to present a false version of themselves, then that can be very damaging to them. We're all using digital technology much more than we used to. And in part, that's part of the way the world has gone. And in part, that's been forced upon us for the last two years of, of lockdown and pandemic, although that's brought some changes, perhaps for the better, in the way that we've used digital technology. We are a person. 
We are one person, whether we're online or in the real world. We have a physical being. We have a system which is more or less healthy. And that doesn't change online or in the real world. So there are things that we carry between these two things. What we don't want to be is very, very different across different contexts. That way, we start to get mental health issues. We start to almost get a form of a multiple personality, which is never enormously healthy for an individual. So we are one person. We've got to remember that. We won't change magically when we go online. We can't be somebody different. We are who we are. The harder we have to try, the more strained that places on our being, our self, and the more likely we are to experience mental health issues. Phil Reid from Swansea University, and before him, David Chalmers, author of Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. And you're with Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. For author and futurist Tracy Follows, the relationship between our online and offline personas is still evolving. Well, I think it definitely is still connected, but less and less so. Or maybe the way to think of it is a multiple set of connections. So we used to have obviously just the physical self and we'd even then we'd have a debate about where does identity reside? Does it reside in the body as such? So if I change my body too much, am I still the same person or am I becoming someone different? Or does identity reside in the, the consciousness, in the mind? So is it a mental capacity and therefore is it really more connected to sort of memories and things that could be divorced from the physical self? And obviously there's been lots of philosophical discussion about that over the ages. But now I think we have this extra dimension. And so one of the ways I think about it is we used to have the biology of the self and the psychology of the self, but now we've got a third dimension to deal with, and that is the technology of the self. So I guess that's the way I think about it. And it depends on how much one is in the physical world versus how much one's presence is in the digital world as to those dimensions, how you dial them up and dial them down, I think. And I think that's what we're trying to get a handle on as individuals and as a society in general, probably. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning into my training. I'm a travel and lifestyle content creator and online educator. I've helped thousands of women create businesses online as influencers and bloggers, and I am so excited to be here with you. As my own research and, and research of colleagues of mine, when we've been looking particularly at sort of teenagers, I think there's very much this thought from older generations that they look down on the virtual world, oh, it's just a game, it's just a playpen. But actually, when you do the research with particularly teen girls, they are talking about some of these virtual influencer characters. And they actually feel that these personas, these characters, these virtual influencers are their friends. So, I mean, a direct quote from one of them is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be friends with the virtual influencer. Why wouldn't I? You know, and it's very much a sense of building up a community and that person or influencer being part of that community. And of course, they study the narratives of these characters and they follow them, you know, quite obsessively in some cases. I think it is easy to be judgmental. And of course, we don't want people to fall down a sort of digital hellhole of, you know, pretend characters who they think are their friends and who never sort of reciprocate in reality. 
But I think also it's a creative exploration, you know, for people who perhaps don't feel like they have a vast amount of friends or the right group of friends, or they just want some sort of outlet or they want to converse with somebody in a more anonymous way, then these are new avenues that are opening up, I think. So identity is as flexible as it is constrained. And that's true whether we're talking online or off. And it's influenced by our peers, the pressures of life and our sensibilities and ambitions. But in the digital world, identity is also bestowed on individuals, often without their permission, by governments and by corporations. And that's left Tracy Follows pondering, can your identity survive 21st century technology? It kind of came to me over time, but it was precipitated by a very specific event. So I'd been getting some emails from Facebook saying, oh, you know, don't you want to update your status? You know, look at what all your friends are doing. You know, they want to know what you're up to. And I, I looked and I thought, this is weird. These aren't any of my friends. And then realized that the email that had come to me at my named address was also addressing me as Byron Loweth. Well, I'm not Byron Loweth, I'm Tracy Follows, but Facebook didn't seem to understand that. And so it appeared to me that somehow my account had been compromised and I looked into it and thought, oh gosh, okay, I need to re-log in and reset my login details. And when I tried to do that, I couldn't do it. So something was really amiss. And uh, I ended up having to scan in my passport as identification to prove that I was Tracy Follows. Of course, when I did this, Facebook came back and said, no, you're not Tracy Follows. And <laughs> I was, okay, where do I go from here? And of course, the truth is you can't go anywhere from there. Basically, I wasn't machine readable. And that meant that I didn't exist as Tracy Follows on Facebook. And it made me realize that actually my identity is no longer, and maybe it never was, but it's certainly now no longer in my control. So we have distributed, fragmented identities now that exist in all these little bits of data all over the internet. And so it's a distributed identity. And who is in control of that? Who matches all those bits of your distributed identity up together? It isn't you any longer. And as I found out, I can't rely on my official government documentation to prove that I am me when I need to prove that I am me in a machine-led world. And so that's what it is, really. Can our identity survive this technological advancement where, you know, it really is the platforms, I guess, for the most part, who are there to sort of manage, control and navigate you through your identity rather than you, the individual who once thought you owned your identity and had full and utter control over it. And we are seeing, aren't we, people addressing this issue, you know, through the use of digital identity apps. How do they mm. work and how successful are they at establishing, if you like, a legally authorised digital identity for people? Well, you've hit on the exact point of all of this because we do seem to be entering a new world. That experience I had with Facebook was the precursor, I think, as you rightly point out, to a world in which we are machine readable fully. And the answer to the question around what really works and what doesn't is we don't know yet because this is a, I think, you know, a huge experiment. And there are many, many different models and different countries are creating 
different ways of doing this. So in India, we have the Aadhaar model. And in China, we have a, a very uh, sophisticated social credit system sitting behind with an identity number that is obviously attached to not only one's authorizations and verifications, but also, you know, a growing number of sort of behavioral and social media data. Those are very controlled, centralized kinds of models of digital identity. On the other hand, we have a decentralized philosophy and lots of people are working around how can we create a privacy protecting user-centric kind of digital identity where the user has lots of control over their own personal identity data, but also the autonomy around using it. So rather than having to go into a supermarket, for example, and showing a driving license, which has got all kinds of personal data written on it, your date of birth, where you live, et cetera, et cetera, certainly in the UK anyway, you could just use a cryptographic system that matches information and says that, yes, you know, you happen to be over the age of 18 and therefore you're old enough to buy this alcohol rather than here's my driving license, which shows my actual date of birth and my actual age and all this other data. And so at the moment, different systems are being trialed. There's a huge amount of systems that sit in between, of course, and there is kind of a more federated networked view of the world. And then we've got, for example, in Europe, we've got the EIDAS version 2, 2.0, that is about to be rolled out, where each country has their own digital identity system. But the hope is that they can become interoperable so that one isn't just using an identity system that is confined by the kind of geographical borders and one can use it in any different country. And of course, that's hugely difficult and complex to run. And I think the real point of this is that when the internet was invented, there wasn't an identity layer as such. And so what we've had is sort of 20 years of Web2 companies trying to recreate an identity system. On Facebook, it's a social graph. Through Google, it's kind of your location identity. That, that, that's the way they try and work out who you are. You know, all this kind of profiling. And this profiling has to now kind of come together in some kind of system. But it's important to me, and I think to lots of other people, that whatever system is chosen that it is privacy protecting, it does give you autonomy. And it certainly doesn't give anybody, the government or private companies, the ability to track you, monitor you, analyze you in a way that really does infringe civil liberties. So at the moment, I think it's all to play for. It's pretty unknown. There are lots of experiments and pilots out there. And we're probably not going to know till the I would say another five or six years, you know, what really does work and what doesn't work for the human being. Which leads us nicely to the concept of Web3 and researcher Kelsey Nabin. Yeah, so I'm an ethnographer, so that means I study the communities that are building these tools and infrastructures, specifically decentralised technologies such as blockchain. So I'll speak a little bit from the perspective of some of the people perhaps building these things or the insights I've garnered from that research. Kelsey is part of the Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT University. So Web3 has been described as the next generation of the internet and it's around driving power away from corporates towards individuals, which is where we get this idea of decentralisation or the decentralisation of power in a way. And so a definition or a description of Web3 that I like is that if Web2 gave people the ability to read as well as write digital media on the World Wide Web, so people could, you know, write blogs on web pages and such, 
then Web3 is a platform infrastructure to read, write and own. And that's where decentralized technologies come in, especially public blockchains, because they are the enabling base for this kind of ownership of digital assets through cryptography and tokens. And is the promise here then, in a sense, to return the web to some of its early ideals of people being involved, you know, moving away from, I guess, the the sort of corporatized, centralized environment that we know today? That's exactly right. So the kinds of It's a very diverse space, but some of the kinds of stakeholders that are involved include Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, who's now working on a project called Solid, which is around individual data ownership. So they're working on data pods and it's kind of his, you know, apology for the direction that the World Wide Web went when it was always intended ideologically by some developers, especially open source software advocates, that it would be this kind of participatory space that everyone would kind of co-own rather than having, you know, big corporate platforms as the intermediaries that are able to extract value from everyday users. Web 2.0, many people who critique it would say turned us, the individual users, into the product. Is this then also a uh, an opportunity, as it's seen by its proponents, to give back some of that power to people, to, to stop them being seen purely as product and for them to have some kind of, not just income, but some kind of power over the way their data is used? Yeah, so this is the tension of actually doing Web3 in practice or implementing these ideas. So it you know, sounds really good that you can build participatory digital systems and we can all own some of the value generated from these platforms and that we can all participate in even designing how they work. But obviously then it comes down to actually designing them, making those decisions, who has the digital literacy and skills to choose how these platforms function and participate in them as well. So there is a a bit of a challenge here in actually doing Web3 effectively, but especially blockchain communities that are kind of working off this decentralized base are trying to do decentralized autonomous organizations experimenting with non-fungible tokens, which people might have heard of as NFTs, and also trying to build open versions of the metaverse to kind of compete with, you know, perhaps like the kind of Facebook vision of a closed, you know, meta where you're still Facebook's customer and source of value. So from your perspective, is Web3, is it more than just ambition or ideal? Do you see it coming to fruition? In the future? I think it's an important counterparty or an important option. You know, if there is experimentation in this space, which does provide some alternatives to what is, you know, widely acknowledged as, you know, a very broken digital experience, then that could be a positive thing. Obviously, you know, there's uh, risks and considerations along the way when we're talking about the ownership of digital value. You know, obviously you want consumer protection and and these kinds of boundaries and and safety nets. But, you know, my full-time research is in this space, so I'm very curious as to how it will unfold. If it does play out the way the idealists would like it to go, what will it mean for individuals? What will it mean for people like you and I interacting in the digital world? 
Well, hopefully it means that we have more awareness over our actual digital experience. So kind of greater literacy to understand the platforms that we're interacting with and how those platforms actually operate rather than that sort of atypical idea of an algorithmic black box where you don't actually know how it works. I guess I've argued as well that these communities and stakeholders building Web3 are still trying to determine a lot of the parameters as well of of what it means in terms of like what makes good governance or what makes for a good infrastructure. But, you know, I would like to be able to hold my own data and determine, you know, where and how that is used or even, you know, benefit from that use of data. I also would like to participate in the design of some of my online experiences sort of saying the kinds of community organizations or, you know, work spaces online that I would like to participate in. So I guess that's the idea in a sense is around kind of greater voice. Kelsey Nabin from the Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks to Kelsey and thanks also to Tracy Follows, Phil Reed, David Chalmers, and of course my co-producer and co-creator here at Future Tense, Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.